But Cameron, do you wear an athletic compression suit under your scrubs? That, that's what I want to know to help you to, to manage the hours of standing up, you know, putting meticulous sutures in your facelifts and necks work, you know, that's... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen around the world, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. For the month of February, it's season two, very proudly brought to us by Medhold Instruments. So for today's episode, we've got something special lined up for you guys. We have not one, but two guests sitting right next to each other, all the way in Sydney, Australia. So a huge big welcome to Richard Harvey and George Marcells. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having us, Cameron. Yeah, my pleasure. So guys, first question. We've got an ENT surgeon and a plastic surgeon sitting in the same room. No, I'm no. Sure. We are actually both ENT. So, oh, yeah. so plastic surgeon. Sorry for you guys. We've got two ENTs sitting in the room together. Some of our and best you guys friends are, both are plastic surgeons, Cameron. Don't get us wrong, but we're both ENT trained. <clears throat> No, well, I, I know. We, we, this is one of the unique things about rhinoplasty is that quite a few different specialities are in one area. And we have probably the predominant plastic surgeons in South Africa, part of our rhinoplasty society. So I want to ask you guys, you, you both, as I understand, especially Richard, you're very involved in academic teaching as well. George, you on your side as well. Tell us, to start off with the listeners, just tell us a little bit about your practice. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I like how you introduce us. You know, we, we, we are, you know, probably both fit in the world of what we call facial plastics. But, but I, I see George as being an, uh, you know, a specialist otolaryngologist and a facial plastic surgeon. You know, he's, his practice very much around facial plastic surgery. There's a lot of aspects to that that I don't practice. And, and I probably self-identify as being an otolaryngologist, but really a rhinologist. So a lot of my practice deals with disorders of the nose and sinuses. And, and I think th this has been a great partnership for the two of us. I mean, we are both very much tertiary surgeons. We, we were just discussing with you and lamenting about how 50 to 75% of our patients have uh, prior surgery and interventions even before they come and see us. So th this is part of that, that, that patient population that, that we have to see. But, but between the two of us, we've, we've ended up, you know, forging a great, uh, I think, partnership over the last 20 years in, in really trying to marry together aesthetic and functional outcomes in, in rhinoplasty. I remember you guys are both uh, speakers at the World Rhinoplasty Day two years ago. Great talks. Um, are you completely working in private practice? Do you also work in, in state practice, if you want to call it that? Yeah, but both of us have public appointments, but we're mainly in private practice. So I think Richard's a double professor, and you have yep. appointments. That... Yeah, I, we, we both work in public. In Australia, it, it is a slightly different than some places around the world where you are literally working in the government hospital or you're working privately. There's no sort of joint arrangement in Australia is very much of both. So George and I do work in the public system, but the public system looks after everything, so they are not doing E&T every day. And so it would occupy the minority of our time. The majority of our cases, and including our tertiary work and academic work, all works through our private, private clinics. clinics. Yeah. Private clinics, yeah. Yeah, that's so inspiring because a lot of people feel that 
cannot do so much academics in private. I still remember visiting Rod a few years ago in Dallas. After two weeks of seeing this guy who's so intense and working crazy and publishing and the editor of the PRS, I asked him, I said, Prof, when do you find time for all this academics? And he said, Cameron, academia is a state of mind. You you do have to integrate it. And, and, you know, it brings up a good story. So 20 years ago, George and I met in the Hilton Bar in Moscow. And uh, we were there, don't ask why, in, in like the early 2000s. We were, no, it was for medical reasons. It was for medical just, reasons, yeah. yeah. But, so, um, <clears throat> but we, we were there and, and I said to George, I said, listen, you know, what, you know one of the, I'd spent some time with George. You know, he was already, you know, really considered Sydney and Australia's best rhinoplasty surgeon at that point even. And I said to him, look, one of the big holes in rhinoplasty world is, is the concept of function. You know, we're not really recording it. No. There's not enough discussion about it. And I said, let's start. So, so about 20 years ago, George took home some very simple peak flow meters, didn't you? Richard gave me a nasal peak inspiratory meter. And I said, what is this? And, uh, you know, we learned how to use it. And we introduced that into the practice straight away. And, and, and we combined it with some validated patient outcome questionnaires, which were, which were very sort of of the on vogue at the moment, that time in, in medicine in the early 2000s, validated patient reported questionnaires. And we started integrating that into our practice and not our public practice, but really our private practice to mm. really honestly look at auditing our results. And, and that's where it started, didn't it? Yeah. So, so a question now, uh, George, 20 years later, how have things changed now, especially on the functional side? Because obviously our training is not just the aesthetic with facial plastics, but the functional side. Have you changed the way you are um, examining the patients instead of like having a, a not an objective way of measuring? And what are you using at the moment? Yeah, so I, I do, I guess, everything, you know, normal with questions, histories and examination where you're looking. Uh, but then on top of that, we, we do a, a full uh, nasal airway assessment for an hour. So Richard's got a nose lab set up and I've repeated it in my practice as well. So all the patients will be subsequently booked for breathing tests that include a nasal peak inspiratory flow, uh, rhinomanometry and acoustic rhinometry. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do all these tests uh, prior to decongestion and then we give them a decongestant and recheck them all. So we get a printout of all of that and then we discuss those with the patients. I, I actually think, you know, I think it, it really works in private practice. You might think, oh, how are you going to get your private patients to do that? I think even forget the tertiary revision patients that we see. Actually, I think all patients really appreciate the sort of thoroughness mm-hmm. of assessing that. And, and if for no other reason, the um, I guess the recording of it to see what happens pre and post surgery. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you do that as a surgeon, you have to be very honest with the reflection when you look at the data. You know, there's no hiding about it. If you don't get it right, it, you know, I was taught as a registrar or a trainee that, you know, nasal patients were a little bit crazy and obsessed and that, you know, objective measures were never quite right. But I can tell you after 20 years of working with George, or 90% of the time when the patient says it's not right, the objective airflow for parameters support the patient's opinion. So really Richard, that's big, a good really big difference in my practice from what I was taught. Yeah. And I'm surprised at how little it's done all around the world. Almost nobody yeah. does these tests. Well, they do little bits. They'll do a peak flow or something small. Yeah. 
Um, in the end, no, you know, we you. consider like, ourselves specialists, so you should sort of get all the maximum information you can get on a patient. And that, I think, also includes uh, CT scanning them all. We yeah, always sure. try and do a cone beam scan at least on everybody prior to any surgery. There you got my next question. I was going to ask about a cone beam because in, in my practice as well, every single patient get their, their objective testing and a cone beam. And what's interesting in our aspect, what that does is occasionally it actually picks up that patient and says, no, so it's blocked. And they're trying to get the medical insurance pay for their rhinoplasty, but actually you can see there's nothing wrong with them. I think that's also a small part of that population that you can actually pick up that you cannot, you don't, if your integrity is there, no, I, I won't push this through as a medical aid because you don't have an obstruction in the nose. It, it, it is a terrible, can I just point out, you know, what, one of the things I, I dislike the most in practice is when patients come and see me, and I don't know how you feel about this, George, but they come and see me and they talk up the obstruction side of it, thinking that this mm -hmm. will help them qualify for rhinoplasty. But, but they're never really absolutely upfront about it. And, and to me, sometimes you can't tell whether that's really the case, but it is a terrible way to start a relationship with a surgeon. If, if they really just want the rhinoplasty, you think they would be upfront about it and just say, look, I don't, my broccoli is not that bad, but look, if I can get it under assurance, it'd be great. But if they try to foe it on you, it's a terrible trust issue heading into that relationship. And then what's worse, if your examination is normal and they really are complaining of some blockage issue, then you're going to under-deliver with the surgery. And so that's going to be a huge issue post-surgery. So it's just a terrible way to start out the relationship, I think. No doubt about it. And that's why it's good to actually so get some objective measures at the start. Mm. I, have a, I have a question for you now, moving on from like the functional side to on the cosmetic side. Your presentations that you do at all these webinars overseas, Instagram stuff, your photography, this intraoperative 3D photography, tell us a little about that because that is just next level. Like we've got all of us trying to take photographs and then you've got George Marsalz who just comes out and knocks us out the park. Yeah, Look like pan, the South Africans doing the kicking against well, the Aussies. Pam, I thought I might win best presentation, but I didn't even get on the lower list, the lower rungs. But... Um, I invented that technique uh, because I was given an opportunity to talk at the uh, International Facial Plastics Conference in New York quite a few years ago um, by Jonathan Sykes, and he put me right before Dean Toriumi. And I thought, my God, how am I going to have anything to say here that, you know, I'm sitting next to Dean and I'm just going to look stupid. So I came up with this idea. I'd... Um, Sometimes after I did a case, I might have got my camera and just handheld it and moved it around the patient. And I did some little videos of that and presented them. And somebody said, oh, geez, that looked really cool. It looked kind of 3D. So I thought, how can I make this, um, you know, even more professional? So I figured out if you put a, get a tripod with a right angle arm and then a rotating mechanism, and you can put that over the top of the patient and then the camera, so if the patient's here, and you've got a rotation here and an arm, and then the camera can turn around the patient's focus point on the nose. And when you do that, it's like the matrix. It looks like, you know, yes. you've circled around it. And we obviously can't shoot the whole uh, surgery with that, 
it's really a, a point in time. So it's good to show what a, a nose looks like when you've opened it up and you go and do some of the manoeuvres and then you come back again and see the changes on it. You know, I'd like to point out something here. You know, I mean, obviously that is a fantastic view to anyone starting rhinoplasty, but I must say George is very disciplined at recording intraoperative photos. So, so while he does do the pan rhinorama occasionally, I think for teaching and lectures, you, George always, don't you, take multiple shots, multiple of, shots of the original yeah. framework of the nose, the the built skeleton, well, and, the septum. Yep, and then and then various stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all the way through. All it's... the way through. So so if George it, it has to reflect on a case. There's, you know, a year later, there's no doubt about it what he's done. He can just look through his interoperative photos and he can look at the steps and all the framework that he's built for that patient. Yeah, and often you see if you've made a, where you've made a mistake when you look back on it, you can see where it was. I mean, some people have gone a step further. Goxel is videoing all of his operations, the whole mm. lot. Um, yeah. I haven't got up to that level of professionalism yet. But I think the documentation, right, so, okay. the documentation is essential. Absolutely. Do you have your own photographer who does it, or do you actually like, unscrub and take photos and yeah, carry so on? Yeah, so it started off uh, with our fellows. Richard and I both have uh, rhinology fellows, um, and so they, they did the initial ones, but we don't always have them. So uh, I train my anaesthetist to do them, and they always whinge because I have to get up and stop reading the paper. <laughs> uh, so I, there, we usually the scout nurses. There's several of them that are very good at them. Some of them are hopeless, so you know we have to train them up a little bit. Um, but some of them have become really good. So, no, you, you well, know the other thing that we, you know, maybe we should talk yes, about too here. You know, is the use of a projectometer. You know, I don't mean to divert the the yes. course. You know, no, but we're trying to add scientific. Measures yes. we can in these. Yes, things. you know what? I, I wasn't introduced to a multi-point projectometer until well into my career, and and mm. I can say that I have learned an enormous amount from using the projectometer. It's really helps my spatial orientation of 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 the nose and the nasal profile. And and while I appreciate there may be colleagues of ours who um, have probably feel that they never need to use a projectometer. Putting the objectives in the projectometer is an amazing way of really, once again, keeping yourself honest about what shape you've really achieved for the patient, just like we measure the function. I can't do it without now. Uh, do you use one, Cameron? No. No, I don't. I, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys who's fighting against wanting to use it. But for the, the listeners out there, do you have the contact details for the company? Uh, yeah, I get the mine from Aaron? Brazil. Gerardo, the surgeon from Brazil, uh, yes. you know, I saw him give a talk about it. So I contacted him and he's got somebody who makes them. So I can get that to you for afterwards. And the new project awesome. is really good because they've, um, they've got some vertical ones that you look at the, the root of the nose, the bridge, the tip, but it's got some angled ones that you can come in from underneath because often your columella is hanging, your subnasal point is a little bit high, so yes. it needs to come in from a different angle. I find it indispensable now. I mean, one of my big problems with rhinoplasty, especially starting septal extension grafts, was over-projecting the tip and leaving it too projected. So this completely uh, helps you not make that mistake. And it also gives you a much better idea of your rotation. I think, I think that's a good point, you know, because, um, you know, we really have moved 
Uh, first of all, we should we should sh- have a shout out here to Rick Davis, who is the master of the projectometer. I mean, he actually measures it uh, based on his photos that he's discussed with the patient as their goal. And then he uses that to actually measure whether or not he's achieved it. I, I'm not sure. I'm not at that level now. I, I, I use it and, and get, yeah, get a rough idea. Yeah, he can work idea. out how many millimetres he wants to move it from the patient's photograph and, uh, and applies that but, practically. But, but we have really shifted, I think, a lot of our techniques to this concept of creating a, a sort of a very fixed tip point through a septal extension graft or, or at least some form of neoseptum that incorporates its cartilage support right out to the tip, and then tensioning of the lateral sidewall to overcome the nasal valve dysfunction. And, and tensioning, it, once again, is a very much a Rick Davis you know, technique. And, and when doing that, I agree with you, there, there is a tendency, you have to actually excise a lot of the cartilage to, to get that tension in some people. And, and there is a tendency or, or, or to cut and overlap. Curve, cut and overlap. And so there is a tendency to, to leave the tip a little bit strong if you're not comfortable doing that initially, I think. So projectometers, you know, a huge help there, I think. And well, even, though columella struts, sorry, even though columella strut may be coming back into vogue with some advances in preservation rhinoplasty, you know, we still don't know long-term are they going to hold up? Is the tip position going to hold or is it going to rotate up over the next few years or will it droop a little bit down, even if you're preserving all the ligaments? We don't know yet. So we, we've got Rick queued up to actually walk us through one of his primary rhinoplasties later on in, in this podcast. So it's going to be good to, and I'm going to hammer him on that project, Tomata. I mean, right. So another question. I want to ask you about fellows and how training is involved in your practice. Because we've got guys from all around the world who are obviously interested in wanting to learn more about rhinoplasty. So maybe a bit of advice for guys who at the start of their career wanting to actually do rhinoplasty properly and not just do it as a little hobby in, in their career? Well, we've got two types of fellows, I guess. So um, there's a Sydney Rhinology Fellowship, which Richard set up. Do you want to tell them a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, that, that, this is a fellowship that really is about training rhinologists. And so people who come and take this on, it's a 12-month program. It's administered through the SF Match system in the U.S., uh, you don't need U.S. credentials or anything to be suitable for Australia, but you do have to have a good English background because that's part of the visa requirements. Um, it's a paid fellowship. It's for 12 months. And, and the, really the fellowship splits into three different aspects, um, functional inflammatory sinus disease, tumor surgery and sort of skull-based work, and, and rhinoplasty. The, these, these, are the, these are the sort of three core elements that they get from that. And then, George, through the Australian Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery, there is a facial plastics fellowship in, in Sydney. Um, we've suspended them at the moment because of COVID, and it's been too hard to, you know, predict and get people out. But we're thinking about starting that up again next year. And, in fact, Richard's the um, current president of the Australasian Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery. Um, but that fellowship involves um, working with me, but several other facial plastic surgeons in Sydney, and an oculoplastic surgeon, surgeon Angelo Serbus, who's one of the best oculoplastic surgeons around. And they also get, hopefully, uh, a good uh, research project, which we um, yeah. have Richard help supervise. So that's a very good fellowship, I think. I, I think it's important, though, Cameron, you, there are many fellowships around the world, like I think head and neck fellowships, um, mm-hmm. in which... Many fellows may be a primary cutter or surgeon in those in those procedures, 
you know, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of steps and, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you can offshoot to a fellow to do independently. And there's some part of rhinologic practice, which is like this as well. I think when it comes to facial plastics, I, I don't think any fellow around the world would go to a place and do like a facelift or rhinoplasty from start to finish. This just does not happen in Canada, North America, New Zealand or Australia. And I think it's really important that young people understand that when they're coming in. So it's really important to go, go to the lab, you know, do cadaver workshops, understand that, you know, get involved during general training and external approaches to septums and septal recons. And then when you do a fellowship, you learn the nuances of assessment, you planning. The judgment. The judgment, yeah. And so you've you got to come in, I think, to a fellowship. You can't come in green as a surgeon. You've got to come in as someone who can handle the tissues, know what they're doing. And look, a lot of our fellows do things like harvest rib cartilage, close the wounds, those sort of things. But, but you know, like in all fellowships, plastics fellowships, it's it's a it's a, it's a fellowship in judgment and experience, not in you doing a bunch of rhinoplasties. And I think that's really important. I think I think some people get it a little bit confused. It's different, though. I understand for ears and noses and head and neck fellowships, but facial plastics because it's yeah. in the private world. It's yeah. It I, I can't have a fellow operating on any of my patients. They all have to. Everything's done by me. I have to close the wounds as well and open them all up. But I think the fellows, if they, I don't think you can learn rhinoplasty just by spending a few weeks with someone, can you? You really have to watch it over and over again. There's so many, every nose is a little bit different, it's a little puzzle, and then you've got to sort of unpack yeah. it and then work out how to put it together. And there's many, multiple judgment steps along the way. Mm. So I want another question here. Your guys' practice is more than half of the practices revision cases, so someone who's yep. been operated elsewhere. So in terms of that, two, two kind of comments. The one is I'm presuming that often somebody hasn't actually assessed the nose functionally well enough, and then there's possibly some more rhinology type of work that needs to get done. And then the other question is on from, from maybe on George's side is, yeah, some of the key things for you when it comes to assessing a revision rhinoplasty. Can I can I point out we we had a discussion before we started, Cameron, and I, and I said you know we published a couple of papers on the burden of mental health in rhinoplasty patients. Um, I think JAMA Facial Plastic Surgery has it. It's a bunch of ones done by a girl called Erica Strasden, and and you know we I just talked about the heavy burden of mental health in in, in terms of poor mental health. No, we're not talking about uh, total depressive disorders or anxiety disorders, but just just poor mental health as recorded on a mental health component score of like a short form 36, like a generic health questionnaire. And, and, and it's very high in revision patients. And I said to George, uh, look, when I see these revision patients, they, they often go into the rhinoplasty. They, they may be slightly unhappy about not achieving their cosmetic goal, but often when they had a normal nose going in and now they can't breathe, they're incredibly remorseful about their surgery. And, and George looked at me and said, so I think it's the opposite. He says, I have all these patients coming to me you know, who, who wish they'd never had the rhinoplasty done because, it's, because they'd never look the same again, you know. So it goes both ways. So, so I think that despite um, the advances in rhinoplasty, there's all these fantastic new techniques now. Um, there's been an emphasis on structure over the last 20 years, but the, you know, new advances with preservation, there's still 
generally a very poorly performed procedure across the whole world, I think, or very difficult for anybody to get right, let alone someone who's proficient at it and doing it all the time. Yeah, there's, there's still challenges, I think, in it for people who do it all the time and, and are very self-reflective of their own outcomes and practice. I mean, it's easy for, I think, experts to stand up and say, I've done 10,000 rhinoplasties and they've all turned out great. I mean, I think it, people who are <laughs> honest about their practice. You listen to two of the best, like Rick Davis and Dean Toriumi. They're constantly, you know, trying to get better and uh, they're very humble about things. I mean, they obviously like to present fantastic stuff, but... There's always that awareness that, you know, this is a humbling operation. Things that do well, Cam, you know, I think in practice, we, you know, we talked about introducing some measures. Something like a nasal peak flow is very, very easy to introduce and you have your nurse or assistant or someone else do it for you. The other one is having an iPad in the waiting room and giving the patients a questionnaire to fill in when they come in. We, we do this. We've, we've done it for years. And... And when you audit those results, that they are they are, are not what they tell the doctor, and it's a very important thing that that that's that you look at that you know, and I and I think that's a great way of auditing. So, which questionnaires is it that you get the patients to fill? Yeah, so we, we have a bunch. We're slightly different. I think I think a really good one is what's is the Sinonasal Outcome Test Twenty Two. This is a really good one. There's a classic shift we call it on the SNOT Twenty Two, just for people. You're talking about picking the right people. When the SNOT 22 has the bottom right shift, we call it. So the bottom half of the questionnaire is all shifted to the right and like to the higher severities and the top bit is still like minor. You've got to be very careful about these patients because these patients are filling in severity high for psychosocial domains. And, and there's a real flag you've got to be, you've got to be cautious on. Um, so we, we do the, the rhinoplasty outcomes evaluation. So the ROE is the, is the other one. And I think it's very important to then have some sort of what we call an anchor score. Now, an anchor score might be a visual analog score from zero to 100 mils, and you just mark up how you feel about your nose. It may be some sort of ordinal scale, what we call Likert score, where it's like minus six to plus six from, I think my nose right now, the, the, the look is terrible, minus six to excellent plus six. That, that's the usual for mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so these are these are the sort of things, and and you know, th th these are so we have we have two validated questionnaires plus what we call in the anchor, and th and this is a great way of then looking at your outcomes uh, and seeing what's what's going on. We don't we don't collect things like the SF thirty six on a routine basis. They're they're not sensitive enough for the outcomes in rhinoplasty surgery. So it is these more specific tools that we use. Okay, so a question here, but close to each other. One is. If you don't like a patient, do you have your own kind of score of to say, I don't really want to operate on this person, no matter what their scores are? Because sometimes I think that's quite an interesting thing, because that's what Olivia said to me last year. He said, he doesn't like somebody he's not going to operate on them. What do you think about that? Well, George always tells me he's got a, a mortgage to pay, and therefore I have to. <laughs> what's, your, what's your take before no, I give you mine? <laughs> I always feel like I can help, help them. That's my sort of misguided... Uh, idea. Uh, mostly, look, I find I quite like the, the sessions when I see new patients, uh, and I tend to like most of them. You know, occasionally there's someone who's a little bit irritable. There's a, there's a lot of anxious people, and uh, I think you just got to, you might, you don't dislike them, you just have to try and understand them and, and feel for them and have some empathy and, and get to understand them a little bit better. There have been a couple of patients we've had some 
miscommunications with. And um, I've been quite upset on a couple of occasions in the last couple of years, actually. But, you know, we re-communicated with them and got them back in and it turned out very well. And, you know, in the end, they, you know, apologised for, you know, being uptight about something. It was usually another issue separate to the consult. I, I must say, I reject patients all the time, Cameron. Uh, and, I, and, and I tell you why, you know, I think George, George though, sees patients in whose the nose doesn't look right. So it, it almost mm-hmm. like George can see that the nose is not right. And so it almost then at that point doesn't matter, you know, if it's not right in George's mind, if the patient wants to do something about it, then I think there's a, there's a fair enough call. And I think that's fine. But in my world, it's, it's got to do with function. And, and so many times I think what people expect out of the function is very distorted. People often refer to things like congestion and they're actually referring to facial pressure and pain. They, they believe that if I have my nose fixed, it's not about the nasal breathing, but it's about their lethargy and their tiredness and their sleep is suddenly going to improve. And I think you should be very cautious as a surgeon. And this would be my one advice to anyone who's starting out in practice listening is that when patients give you a, what I call a second level function as, as their primary presenting symptom, you have to be very cautious. So if they say to you, I, I want to I fix my nose, they might say my nose is blocked, my nose is blocked. And then, and then what are you hoping to achieve? I want a better sleep. Whoa, you've got to like take a wind back now and say, okay, really, is that... And then if you measure their nose, Cameron, and their nose ain't that bad, you're going to under-deliver there for sure. And so I, I would be very – and if they talk about lethargy and tiredness and sleep and exercise is another one. I've had people, you know, clearly not in good shape and they think that fixing their nose is going to make them have greater fitness and tolerance and, you know, it's, it's a whole world. And, 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 you know, if you said to me, all that stuff leads into empty nose, which is some form of hyperventilation anxiety disorder, not, not – it's got nothing to do with surgery – and so I think that's, you know, where, where, that, where those sort of uh, heroistics, we call them, or rules of thumbs come into play. You know? And on the other hand, uh, sometimes or usually when you make the nose look a bit better, the patients sleep better anyway. Okay. <laughs> well, that's sure. Guys, we've been, we've been having half an hour of these lovely pearls that are coming out. Um, I want to wrap it up with a last question to reflect upon. That is, in your career up to this point, even from when you're a resident or medical student, tell the listeners about that really bad experience, the bad day, but also when was that one time where you got your 10-wicket haul against South Africa, which I don't think has ever happened in Australia. <laughs> Maybe share with the listeners what the, the lows and the highs have been in, in where you guys are. You, I've you got to just rub a bit of sandpaper to get this ball to swing back yeah, the yeah. other way. <laughs> <laughs> We're experts at that one. <laughs> I don't know. Which, which... Oh, look, I think a- any patient that's unhappy with the result is devastating to me. You know, I, I take it very personally. Uh, so even if it's something minor, I always feel a bit, little bit upset. Uh, but, you know, you, you're going to get complications. If you've been doing this for 20 years, you're going to experience all sorts of complications, you know, bad infections and get excessive scarring on the nose, and you've got to just um, look after these patients and spend the time with them and nurture them through it, I think. That's, that's the hard bit. I think just also that when they're upset with you, they don't feel like you've done a you know, good enough job. I find that very hurtful so to deal with that. 
part of the practice? Uh, I think one of the best things you can do as a rhinoplasty surgeon, especially when you're starting out, is when someone walks into your room who's had a procedure and they don't look quite right, don't ignore it. Point it out to them and say to them, you know, obviously there's a little, there's a little contour irregularity, a small depression, because you can guarantee... Oh, you mean on a patient that you've operated you've, on? That one's operated on. You've got your own patient. You can guarantee that they know and they're just maybe not brave enough aren't prepared to task you, but they, but they know. And the second one, too, is that, and if they really don't, they don't care. And so you're not going to really, they're obviously not obsessive enough about it. And, and if you point it out and they haven't really noticed, they'll just think you're being obsessive, doctor. And when you do point it out and they are worried about it and did want to bring it up with you, they'll feel relief because all they want to know is that you're willing to acknowledge it and do something about it. And doing little touch-ups, whether you do little fillers or minor touch-up revision, is real part of practice, and it's actually all about making patients really happy. And so I, I think some young doctors almost see as going back to the operating room as being a bad thing. They want to avoid it, and they get into these bad habits of not acknowledging their, their failures and, and, and imperfections, which we all have, you know. Yeah, I think it's a good point, Richard. Well, sure. Um, I've so enjoyed listening a pity that South Africa is so far away from Sydney to come in. Yeah, but things from, will open um, up again. So, I mean, you've you let Omicron out, so you know, yeah, that's, once, that's once you get that back in the bottle. <laughs> you did that. That was the best thing you did for the Western world. You just, like, released Omicron on us. We've, it's just accelerated just our getting over the whole COVID pandemic thing. Yeah, we mean that as a good thing. Yeah. And one other good thing about the pandemic, and I can see you've got the same gear. This is just my go-to outfit now. Like I, I consult in this, I work in this. I, I've got all these beautiful suits and ties. I never wear them to work. In, I never wear them anymore. But, but Cameron, do you wear an athletic compression suit under your scrubs? That, that's what I want to know to help you to, to manage the hours of standing up. You know, putting meticulous sutures in your facelifts and necks work. You know, that's that is. I, um, that is you know, in South Africa, we don't need that. We we built rock solid. <laughs> You're all the boars, are you? <laughs> all the bura. Afrikaners. Yeah, awesome. Afrikaners. Well, guys, from from uh, on behalf of the listeners from around the world, I mean, this podcast going out to 70 countries around the world. It's an absolute, not just a pleasure, but an honor to have both of you on the show today and to listen to what you have to say. So thank you. And to the listeners, please reach out to, to both uh, Richard and George. They are Phenomenal human beings. They're great. They'll get back to you. They'll help you in, in, in your career. And they are. Again, shout out to Medhold. Thank you for helping us with uh, bringing this to podcast out. And gentlemen, thank you. Thank you for staying up late at night. And um, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. It's just so inspiring. Thanks, Thanks Cameron. Me. We really appreciate you having us on. Thanks for having us, Cameron.